0: Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chedam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this is a new edition of Coach's Corner. I'm excited to bring in two coaches today, Esther Atkins and James McCurdy. If you've listened to this show before, you know, James, well, he runs McCurdy Trained with his wife, Heather. He's been my coach for a while and he coaches a lot of athletes of all abilities also on this podcast like i just mentioned is esther atkins so esther is someone who has competed in the olympic trials she's done very well she's a high level marathoner she's won a 233 15 in the marathon she is also a private coach for mccurdy trained and she coaches at clemson university she has done exceptional things and i loved her perspective on so many things that we've talked about in the past specifically for this episode We talk about athletes who are trying to compete at the highest level possible while trying to live a kind of a typical normal life, either from a family perspective and or from a professional perspective. So people who are trying to be or are currently elite runners, but don't live the typical professional runner lifestyle of focusing all of their energies into that pursuit. So we talked all about this in every way possible, and I think you will get a lot out of it. Now, before we get into that episode, I want to talk about a brand new sponsor that we have, Four Sigmatic. I love this stuff. First of all, it's mushroom coffee. Okay, now, let's just get this out of the way first. Yes, mushroom coffee. I know what you're thinking. That sounds gross. Believe me, it's not. I drink this stuff every afternoon. I absolutely love it. Lion's Mane coffee for me is fantastic. It's really simple. You just take your tea kettle out. You you know get the the you get it boiling. I pour seven ounces into a mug. I pour the packet of powder into the mug. Stir it up good to go. This stuff is so tasty. It smells fantastic and it's great. It doesn't give me the jitters or anything like that. There's no crash as well. I love this stuff. I really do. And in terms of what it entails, It's made of 100% organic Arabica coffee beans, zero sugar, zero carbs, zero calories. It's organic. It's vegan. It's fantastic. And of course, we have a special offer for the Rambling Runner audience. Receive 15% off Four Sigmatic today. Just go to foursigmatic.com slash Rambling Runner or enter code Rambling Runner at checkout. So that is, and I'll spell it out for you for Sigmatic. That's F O U R S I G M A T I C dot com slash rambling runner to receive 15% off your order. Believe me, you will not be disappointed. Now to my podcast with Esther Atkins and James McCurdy. Hello, James and Esther. Welcome to the show. This is our first Coach's Corner of 2020, and I'm so excited to get started. First of all, before I start introducing what we're going to talk about, thanks for hopping on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us.
0: So we just had the Olympic trials in the marathon, which was just so exciting. Two great races. However, even more exciting than the races themselves, in many ways, was the buildup. To that, and for a lot of people, there was two different camps of runners that they drew inspiration from and couldn't wait to follow through the entire process. There were the elites who were, you know, kind of in contention to make the Olympic team, and then there was the group of people who, while obviously again elites runners in and of themselves, were juggling their running lives with traditional lives that so many other runners, no matter of, no matter their experience or running ability, can can basically their lives mimic theirs in certain ways. And that sort of um comparison point helped launch, I think, this this rise in the interest in the trials to, to a whole nother level, you know, amongst so many other factors. So with that being said, we're gonna touch on that today. And what we talked about, you know, basically prior to coming on the show was, you know, how to, not how to, but Talking about specifically for you two as high level coaches, about talking about coaching people who work full time but also want to race like elites and with elites and of that genre. So, first things first, Esther, when you heard that question and we were bringing it up, uh, the three of us, before we hopped on the call, what was the first thing that came to mind for you?
1: So, um, I have a lot of experience as an athlete and also as a Coach, I'm gaining more experience, um, and I currently am coaching my husband Cole, who ran with me at Zap Fitness and was living the elite runner lifestyle, and we both were doing that for a long time. For I did it for three years, and he was doing it for six years. And um, so there's a you know a case study of one where we I'm taking an athlete who has lived that lifestyle and has lit, you know, run the mileage and done the big monster workouts and everything. Um, and I've adapted his training for now that he's working full-time as a youth soccer director. And, um, he has seen a lot of results. Um, he's been running really well and actually run a couple marathon PRs since he started working with me. Um, still have to work on the rest of his PRs, but, uh, yeah, it's it's been really rewarding to see that he could pick up a full time job and also continue to improve his fitness.
2: And how about you, James? Well, I come into this in a different uh, in, a, in a different plane, I guess. Uh, the first person I had qualify for the Olympic trials that was one of my own athletes was Sarah Bishop, and. She was a full-time worker at that time, working fifty to seventy hours a week. Uh, we all know her her craziness and her hecticness, or, or uh, to get to where she is now. But um, or, or and, and certainly the results she's been able to see the past few years. But uh, you know, she she saw a lot of, a lot of struggle on her own end. Um, so coming into it from that point of view, uh, I I didn't really have that experience of working with an elite runner, uh, as a personal athlete, a truly, uh, next level athlete, uh, until Sarah Bishop. And then it started to kind of snowball with a few other athletes that came on board, um, that were able to qualify. Um, so I have, I've got a few professional runners that work full-time I've got a few professional runners that uh, that work from home full-time and and that gives them the outlet that they need uh, to be able to, to to do different types of workouts and, and run different types of volume but I've got many athletes um, that have that limitation of training because of the rest of their life whether it be work or childcare or a relationship uh that really does limit uh, some of the the training that they would be able to do in comparison to say a professional runner with a contract.
0: So let's, I guess, first things first, define our terms. So Esther, back to you, you know, you've lived this life um, as well. What is the difference in your mind between a professional runner and an elite runner?
1: Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I, it's a term I've struggled with, from the day I decided to join Zap, um, that, you know, James was using the word professional runner, uh, just now in talking about professional runners who work full time, which, you know, if you're receiving an appearance fee from Boston Marathon, like, yeah, you deserve to call yourself a professional runner. Um, but it is such a odd, like undefined zone in the running hemisphere, um, because, for instance, in triathlon, they have pro cards and, uh, in cycling, they have categories and, um, you know, we don't really have anything that defines what a professional runner is. And so, um, you know, I, even while I was at zap, I eventually came to the point where, you know, especially after I left zap, I was coaching at Ryder university and making half of what I was making as a runner, as a coach. So, Like technically the job that people understood was that I was a coach, but what I was actually paying the bills with and thriving off of was my income from running. Um, So I guess in my mind, I'm very literal about it. And I think that being a professional runner means that you are earning most of your money from running. Now, um, a lot of people think about it differently and there isn't really a set definition of what a professional runner is but some people think that like just because you have a contract um makes you a professional runner. Well, let me tell you, some of those contracts are $5,000. Kim Conley when she made the Olympic team in 2012 was not making a significant amount of money from running, but she was obviously, you know, living that professional lifestyle um and it paid off big time. So, um yeah, it's it's definitely a a tough answer. <laughs> Um, but in my mind, I, th- I would say like an elite runner is just somebody who can, I mean, definitely qualify for the Olympic trials, but I would say the elite realm kind of goes down to the local elite of like, you can get comp entry because you meet those standards for your local 10K to run with a, the elite start, that kind of thing. Um, so that's a much broader term for me that I think encompasses a lot of the people that are coached by McCurdy Trained.
2: Yeah, I I I would absolutely agree with that. Um, you know, I've got a few athletes right now who have the potential to get a contract on the road and uh that sounds great and all, but it doesn't really help them financially. Uh to pursue their running too much more than just getting some free shoes, possibly. Uh, so would I consider them professional runners, even if they have an Olympic A qualifier? I I don't know if I would. Um, I mean, let's take Kate Landau for example. She is someone who just finished 14th at the Olympic trials. She was 15th at New York City, 13th in Boston. Before she came on board with me and and with another coach, she was eighth in Chicago. Uh, but she self-classifies this as a hobby. You know, she's a physician's assistant who works 50 to 60 hours a week. And yet she's one of the best runners in the country. Um, And certainly she's got the chops to classify herself as a a professional runner, um, but she doesn't. Uh, Whereas John Ranieri, who doesn't have the same accolades as of yet, I would classify him more as a professional runner because the totality of his life uh, is about this sport. Um uh, with between coaching and running and training, he lives that in totality of, of a professional runner lifestyle.
1: Definitely. I totally agree with that. And Kate was one of the people who came to mind when I was thinking about that. And it's interesting too. I think part of my hang-up with calling myself a professional runner was I pride myself on being more well-rounded. And in some ways I felt like the label of professional runner or professional athlete. Made me feel like it wasn't mine anymore, that I was somehow like bought. And I think maybe Kate has some of that mental hang up on that term as well, because she's obviously more accomplished than a lot of people who are living the lifestyle and um, that professional kind of mentality and call themselves professional runners.
2: Yeah, you know, she she definitely has uh, seen some of that great success. And there are There are plenty of athletes who are at her level, maybe a little bit above her, maybe certainly a little bit behind in some aspects of some performance who do have contracts, Mm -hmm. and they would consider themselves, rightly so, professional runners. Uh, I think it does come down to a self-classification. I remember way back in the day, Runner's World, I believe it was Aaron Strout wrote an article about a few athletes in Flagstaff here in town that were Living a professional runner's life, and one of them was nowhere near a professional level. Uh, but he classified himself as a professional runner because of the totality of his life, and I thought that was really interesting because he was certainly trying to make strides towards that, but he wasn't getting paid for it.
1: Right? How does how does one self fund for that? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. You get like the, that's like the warrior monk. Take on you know becoming a professional runner, uh, you know because it's it's beans and rice and in uh, couch surfing to some degree, <laughs> in terms of if you're going to live that kind of lifestyle without the results.
2: Yeah, yeah, there there are definitely a few athletes that I work with right now that are on the cusp of of greatness, uh, but I don't want them to sacrifice the rest of their life just for the sake of a possibility, because at some point running will end. You know there there is life beyond this, and there's certainly life. There's more to life than just this one result in the present as well. So you know, I, I, I struggle with trying to classify my own athletes as professionals. And I'd almost rather not have a contract right now and just focus on just the idea of just self-improvement for all the athletes that I work with.
1: And again, back to Kate, I she reminds me a lot of my friend Sarah Cummings in New York who has been working full-time in finance since she graduated from Princeton and has run at the highest level in the country as well. And, um, I know that she always says that she is certain that if she quit her job or dialed it back, then, you know, she would basically self-destruct as a runner. And I think sometimes, especially with somebody like Sarah or Kate, you know, if they're running really well while juggling everything, you know, sometimes when you remove one of the balls, everything actually falls apart. Um, so it's not necessarily the answer for everyone. Even if it were a possibility,
0: and that's interesting because I know there's two different ways to come at this question that we posed, and we actually had a lot of people respond on Instagram when we asked people if they want to submit a question for this topic. Is you can come at it in terms of say someone who works full time, who is progressing as a runner, and now is on the cusp of you know competing with the the pros and earning money for their running, or from the other direction, right? The people who you know like your friend uh, Sarah Cummings. Who you know maybe at some point you know this isn't a perfect comparison here. Um, who maybe were elite runners and pros and who want to stay there, but also decide to amplify their professional lifestyle while doing it and kind of you know take on more responsibilities um, you know in the in the work world while still trying to maintain or even improve themselves as runners. So for the time being. Let's stick with the former rather than the latter, right? The, the people who are working full time, you know, maybe have, even have family obligations, whether they're parents or so on and so forth, but also want to basically run at the highest possible level that they can, so in the short term and the long term. and I think that's, that's kind of what we're touching on here because that's where a lot of people view themselves and while we all have certain genetic factors that can help or limit us, There's, yeah, I think that's the dream of everybody for, you know, sustained, a sustained training period of time, you know, years and years, maximize as many things as we possibly can and see exactly how good we can be, which is, you know, the dream for so many. So with that being the case is first things first, Esther, to you, how much does age play a factor in these kinds of questions? And along with that, are there certain disciplines or events where age may play more of a factor than others?
1: So the answer is definitely there is uh, an impact of age. Um, and it's also interesting. So again, back to Kate because she is such a unique story. I mean, she there's for instance, there's uh, running age and then there's also chronological age. So when you have a tenure gap, especially with a lot of these women who maybe took a break to raise their kids and um, then come back to running, even though they were pretty elite in the college age, like um, Roberta Groner, you know, but taking that break does kind of set pause on the clock in terms of how many lifetime miles they can handle then in their 40s. um, And also in terms of their recovery time between runs. So for instance, if you've got somebody who's been a lifetime runner, these are those two are maybe very exceptional um, in terms of women in their 40s who can train and, and work. Um, but I would say for your average 40 to 50-year-old, I mean, I even noticed the difference coming from being in college where I could just get out the door and my first mile would be under seven minutes every day um, then to once I was actually doing 80 miles a week. <laughs> to hundred miles a week. And, um, that first mile out the door got a lot slower, um, in my late twenties even, and then into my thirties, it's, um, you know, it just takes more time to warm up. The other, another major difference is, uh, the time between interval or between hard efforts. So spacing out your workouts is going to be more important as you get a little bit older and really paying attention to the recovery in between, um, you might be able to follow in college, you might be able to follow up like a hard interval workout with a solid medium long the next day. But, you know, as you get older, that might have to be separated by a day. And, um, it's all kind of a juggling act between, and it's totally dependent on the athlete and seeing how the athlete really responds to stuff. And, um, you, you get a sense pretty quickly if it's too much or too little,
2: Yeah, I think um, I kind of have the same experience with with some of my athletes who are above the 40 into the 50 range. We have to think about training in a different aspect, uh, certainly than someone who's just out of college, who doesn't have the lifetime miles on their body or who whose body might recover just a little bit faster, there's always going to be exceptions to the rule, right? We have an athlete who's 70 years old that, that lives in England and he ran like a 257 marathon uh at sixty-nine or seventy. His name's Mike Sheridan. Um and he he had a better age graded result than I think Yulu Kripchoge did in the same race. There's always gonna be exceptions to the rule. Uh Jeannie Rice, look at Jeannie Rice, 70 plus years old, and her age graded calculator, it, it breaks. It goes uh, above a hundred percent because she's so much faster than what they say is a, a physical possibility. Uh, but those are really exceptions to the rule. I think uh, it's important to, to keep in mind that someone who is above 40 or above 50, take into consideration what their their training load has been over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Are they brand new into running? Uh, or... Are they seasoned for decades, and and how do they physically respond to training? Uh, Crystal Harris is a prime example, someone who made it to that elite level at 41 years old. She ran a 75-minute half marathon in Houston this past January, Uh, and it wasn't even, in our minds together as coach-athlete, it wasn't even as good as we thought she could run based on what, uh, what the results in the workouts were looking like. But with her, we definitely take this approach of we're going to work hard for six to eight weeks or even for an extended season of of 12 to 14 weeks. And then we're going to give a down week to make sure that we let her body physically and emotionally recover from the workload.
0: James, that dovetails so nicely with my next question. Esther, this one's to you. Is that how do you manage and how do your athletes manage the idea of not only are they dealing with physical stress from all of their running, but also the mental and emotional stress with the rest of their lives.
1: That's such a great question. And it is really similar to something I received on Instagram asking about what is the greatest recovery tool. Um, And in my opinion, and also based on basically everything I've read in recent years, the greatest recovery tool is sleep. Um, And in addition to that, like you cannot benefit from training unless you're recovering from it. So if somebody isn't getting enough sleep because of stress or, um, various other, you know, obligations or they're having, they decided they only can run if they get up at three 30 in the morning, like, okay, but how much are you going to benefit from the training if you're only getting five hours of sleep? Um, so In my opinion, you know, like obviously there are, you have to find that point of diminishing returns. And maybe you end up running five days a week or something like that just to get it all in. And for instance, I have um, Nikki Matescu, who I've been coaching for almost a year. um, And she works full time and she has an issue with her knees also. And so that means that she has to cross train two days a week. And she was able to run 242 or 243. I can't quite remember. Um, at grandma's to qualify for the trials. And, you know, she actually was really inspirational to me because she came to me with those parameters. um, And I said, sure, let's work with it. Let's see what we can do. And um, it was really inspirational to see that she could, you know, work with five days a week and still get basically everything she needed, obviously, in order to achieve her goal.
0: So Esther, in that situation how is she incorporating cross training into her schedule? And by that, I mean, what kinds of work is she doing on, you know, say the bike or in the pool or whatever, as opposed to, you know, the intensity of her
1: runs? Yeah. So it's funny because she kind of had her routine already before she came to me, but I think she can, she'll message me and let me know if I'm wrong. Um, (laughs) But generally she was doing about an hour of um, elliptical or biking at home actually, on her, um, trainer at home on Mondays and Fridays. And then every two to three weeks she would take a Monday off completely. Um, and it was just an hour though that she was on there. I think she, she does do little workouts. So generally her week would look like, um, a moderate bike workout on Monday, a mileage run with strides on Tuesday, Um, a marathon pace workout on Wednesday, which would be pretty long, like 12 to 14 miles total. Then her Thursday would be just a mileage day, sometimes kind of more of a continuous medium long. Um, Friday would be another cycling workout. And then Saturday would be her, um, long run workout and Sunday would be a recovery day, just a recovery jog.
0: So James, when you have an athlete who kind of fits this description that we were talking about here and you notice that, you know, not notice, but they say they come to you and they need to alter the schedule or they need flexibility here and there. And it's just the whole scheduling piece can be really dynamic. What's that like for you? Not only in terms of working with them, but also trying to make sure that they're getting everything in that they need to get in in order to reach the goals that they've self identified.
2: Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I see it all the time. Gosh. Uh, I mean, that's the primary subject of the athletes that that I work with, that we work with as a whole, is athletes that have, for lack of a better phrase, real lives. Um, you know, we don't have a single person in in the eight hundred plus athletes that we work with that only runs. So constantly adjusting schedule is paramount. Uh, But from an elite level point of view, uh, one of my athletes in particular is uh, an HR, human resources person at Google. Uh, She lives out in Oakland. Her name is Jules. And so we had this idea over the past few years that we're going to try to develop and get ready for the Olympic trials. And Take a stab at qualifying. When I first started working with her, she was only three oh five, and I don't say only, but you know, that's a that's three miles away from qualifying from the Olympic trials at that point, right? Um, so that that's a lot of time to take off, and her work schedule is so hectic that you know she'd be she'd be in Atlanta one one week, and then she'd be back in California. She'd be in Australia every once in a while uh, for for weeks at a time. Even even this past training block. Leading into uh, CIM, where she ultimately qualified for the Olympic trials, she missed like two weeks of training because of her work schedule and because it was so hectic. We had to adjust what it is we were doing, but the totality of the training, the overall concept of of the training held true. She was worried that if we dropped her mileage down by 15 miles a week, that she wouldn't continue to see the the development that she wanted to see. And I came back almost exactly with what with, with what Esther just said is but if you're not sleeping, it doesn't matter. So let's let's maximize what you can do on fifty five miles a week. Let's get the best training we can off of that, rather than try to run seventy five or eighty miles a week for the next six weeks and have you suffer and not even be able to be uh, fresh enough to run the race that you want. I don't know if that'll be enough to qualify for the trials, but let's, let's take that approach. And she ended up qualifying by about 26 seconds. And she took about eight and a half, nine minutes off of her lifetime best in that race. Um, we see it a lot with, with Kate as well, because of her work schedule, uh, constantly adjusting because of her energy level that, uh, she's expending at work. It's very, anybody in the medical system, the medical care. I don't care if you're a NICU nurse or a doctor or just an ER. It's very difficult. It's very physically demanding as well as emotionally demanding. And if you don't have both of those firing on all cylinders, then you you probably should take a step back in the volume of running so you can get more refreshed.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was remotely coached for the best years of my career. And I can say that this applies to all of my Athletes, as well, that they basically more often than not, they just need somebody to tell them it's okay to take a day off or to do a little bit less. Um, and I completely understand that. So, generally, the way it works with me is somebody I'll either know that somebody ch- generally does kind of shift things around. So, I'll put notes into their workouts on VDOT as to like exactly how they should adjust if they do try to move things around. Um, If it really matters, you know, specifically for that week, maybe there's a race or something coming up and, um, then it's really, it needs to be specifically laid out in a certain way. Um, but generally workouts can be pretty flexible and, and most people just need to hear that it's okay to move things a day or, or two. Um, and that's generally going to be the better thing to do if you're feeling like you're not up for it or, um, it's just not going to go well.
0: James, how do you handle those um communications from your athletes where they just, you know, internally kind of reach this breaking point? Maybe it's a, a perceived breaking point as opposed to a real one where they say, "I just don't know if I can do this anymore." I'm just I'm either I'm not seeing the results or I'm just I'm not, you know, I, I'm I'm just so tired or I'm frustrated or whatever, and you as, you know, an unbiased observer, know that that's not the case, but you know that how they feel is very real to them. And this is something that I know uh, affects runners of all abilities at one point or another, if not more than one point. How do you handle those those conversations and those communications?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. That is something that comes up quite often. Uh, and I, I think what we're going to get out of this entire podcast is that There's not too much different communication between our elites, our professionals and the regular uh, runner out there that we, we all deal with the same issues. So specific to this question, uh, one of the first things I try to do is pay attention to someone's blood work uh, to understand are they struggling because of a deficiency that we can possibly fix. So I try to keep on top of my personal athletes and getting them checked every three to four months uh, to make sure that they are in a good, safe range with vitamin D, vitamin B12, as well as iron uh, so we can understand is are they struggling because they're deficient because something train, changed in their training and their volume is causing a deficiency or you know maybe maybe nutritionally they're suffering so maybe this is a way to keep ahead of that curve uh where uh they um they we can prevent some of those those feelings uh, of struggle uh but sometimes everything's perfect and sometimes an athlete just needs a break. One of my athletes uh, recently, his name is Heath. He's a great runner. I love working with him. Uh, we worked really hard for a year to see a personal best in the 5K that he hadn't seen for about six years. Uh, and he was able, he was actually uh, running the same race as Esther and Esther's 5K PR in Indianapolis this past November. And, um, Training had gone very, very well for a period of time. He even got down to a 420 in a mile, which is fantastic. But then just three weeks later, everything was, was a struggle. Everything. So our first attack was, let's make sure that your nutri- your nutrition and your your vitamins and uh, and your, your iron levels are all in good range. And they were. So it led us to just need a t- to take a break for about two weeks. Hey, listen, we've been working really hard we don't want to go into an overtraining syndrome everything is good from a nutritional standpoint it might just be time for you to take a little bit of a rest for for 10 to 14 days and he really didn't want to he he thought maybe man like i'm just not strong enough i'm not i'm not capable i'm not as good as i thought i was maybe i faked my way to some of these results that i saw just a month ago and that just wasn't the case sometimes bodies break down and they need some recovery and we took that time and now we're rebuilding and we're getting back into it. And today, actually this morning, he had one of the best workouts he's ever had, uh, on uh, route to a two mile race that he has, uh, on Saturday evening, um, or Saturday morning rather. So, you know, my first response was, well, I'm really glad that we took that rest. Because it allowed you to not just physically, but emotionally recharge. Now he's excited about running again. I had an athlete uh, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, uh, who almost, actually no, less than that, uh, this past summer. I'm getting my months mixed up. She almost quit the sport entirely because of the heat and humidity that she faced over the summer. And the heat and humidity was just killing her. And she sent me a text. She said, "I'm. So, I just don't know if I can do this anymore. Uh, you know, this is this is killing me. This is draining to me. I, I'm just not seeing the results I want to see." And it was the same kind of situation where, "Hey, listen, this isn't you. We just need to take a step back and recognize what it is you're dealing with, recognize that reality, and then attack that reality in a different way." Uh, and she, she was able to go on two months later, set lifetime best in a 5K and a 10K and ultimately in a half marathon and then finally break three in the marathon, even with a pretty serious chest cold that we didn't know she had until the, ra- the morning of the race. You know, I think everybody can kind of kind of go through these seasons of, of, of struggle. Um, but I, 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 it's important to recognize the reality of what is going on. If someone comes to me and says, hey, I, I just don't like running anymore. I just don't find joy in the sport anymore. Well, I'm not going to, that's a different conversation than somebody who's like, man, I'm just not good anymore.
1: Yeah. So I was wondering, James, about that athlete who ran the 5k. Um, what did that downtime, like what did two weeks dialed back look like for him?
2: I gave him seven days completely off. And then I reintroduced running for 30 to 45 minutes for the next four or five days and then I gave him some strides uh, at the end of that two-week period, and then I gave him a little bit of a mini miniature workout about 20 days into it, uh, maybe 18 to 20 days, and then he had a first real workout back today.
0: Cool. So, Esther, do you feel like you'll go to your athletes who you feel like can get to that next level and really try to push them, or do you feel like oftentimes it's athlete-driven and they're setting big goals and, and they ask you for your input into it to help them get there?
1: So it's really funny. I had a question that on Instagram that led me to this question I kind of had for myself, which I constantly think about, which is um, how do I apply my experience and knowledge from my own running and training and racing experience to my athletes without projecting myself onto them? Um, and so one of the things that I do feel like I kind of err on the side of projecting a little bit is um my own experience has been that when i simply just keep on going based on effort and and really finding that internal rhythm that feels like marathon pace or it feels like half marathon pace um i end up getting a lot fitter than if i decide in my head okay now now it's time to break 230 um and i go out and say okay now i need to be doing more work than I ever was doing before when I was running at my best, you know, because how else are we going to make any progress or get faster? Um, so I, that, that one cycle that I did before Boston 2017, now that I look back, um, was the one time with my coach Terrence Shea that I really reached for fitness instead of allowing it to come. And I love what James said earlier in the conversation. I think he was talking about Jeal's was just like, you know, we're not going to necessarily like, we'll just get you as fit as we can and maybe that will qualify you for the trials, but maybe it won't. And that's okay because you'll know that you did your best. And I think that generally when I um, allow my athletes to approach their training in that way, they end up achieving better than what they thought anyway. So in answer to your question, when I have somebody who really shows great potential, I don't treat them any differently than I would with anyone else who, um, really just wants to get better.
2: Yeah. I've, I've had a, I've had a, f- more of my athletes are on that end, but I do have a few, uh, a few athletes who want for back of a uh, lack of a better term, their breakout race the race that shows who they are as an athlete. And if they can get on the map with this one performance, then everything is going to be okay. And then all of a sudden that race didn't happen. It, it, It is. It's a dangerous way of thinking. And it's, it takes a lot of communication, a lot of talking off the ledge because almost every workout for, for those athletes, almost every workout is a make or break and good, Gets in the way of perfect, and therefore it's not good enough, and they will bail on the workout, or or they have an anxiety attack mid-workout. And for some, that's that's athletes I coach here in town, and for some, that's athletes I don't I, I don't get a chance to be with in person, and it, it 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 generates different conversations. And what I'm trying to instill in those types of personalities is that you don't need anything. We're doing this because you love it. You find joy in it. Yes, we want to perform, but it's okay if it's not on a set timeline. As long as we do X, we're going to be okay. Uh, and as long as we keep healthy, that progression will continue. It might not be in the timeline that we thought, but it's okay we're gonna get there it's just gonna take some time it's gonna take a, a bit more more training for John last year when we were training for Boston we were very time oriented very time oriented because at that point the Olympic standard was X the uh 21130 the Olympic standard was also top 10 in the race so we were focusing on those performances and it led to a DNF we were chasing right? and that was a big that was a big mistake from a coaching perspective and it was a big mistake from an athletic uh, perspective. Uh, but when we went into New York we weren't chasing anything. We were just trying to run what it is we could run and look at what he was able to accomplish. When we take that pressure away when we just focus on the performance uh, or, or the development and and, and uh, giving you a little bit of freedom, I think that that, that speaks volumes to what uh, you're, you're going to be able to accomplish o- overall. Uh, that's
1: exactly what happened to me in that 2017 Boston buildup was every single workout was a make or break. Like I could see exactly how far I was from my goal time, you know, and instead of just having like, Hey, you need to run marathon effort. And then I ended up, you know, either it was truly marathon effort or it wasn't. And um, I knew if I was cheating myself, so I, um, you know, and then in terms of with John and really these athletes, uh, who generally are trying to force things a little bit and, and riding those highs and lows after every single workout. Um, it's the same thing for them that like, it, just like you said, if you can just shift your mindset, it's not even necessarily about the timetable. Like you might actually achieve your goal by not forcing it like in the same timeline as you wanted to, um, Instead of just forcing it and wearing yourself out emotionally and physically in the pursuit of that specific goal.
2: Yeah. I, I find with with the athletes that are always trying to force it, what I tend to do to help curb that is to uh give them absolute limits yes. on easy runs. And absolute limits on paces mm-hmm. because if they, they have absolute limits, if they know that I'm going to be pretty upset and pissed off that they're not following it, then that's going to lead to even more harsh communication. Um, and I've learned that with certain athletes. I can present training in that way. Yeah. Uh, and it helps a lot.
1: Another trick is uh, encouraging athletes to pursue accuracy instead of like overdoing the assignment. It's not how fast you can run, it's how accurately you can hit the pace.
0: I love that idea of of kind of making sure that they're not doing too much, not going overboard. And yet at the same time, you two must get questions a lot that basically come down to what is my potential? How much better can I get? What is the ultimate limit to the times that I can reach? Esther, when someone comes to you with that version of a question, how do you answer it?
1: It's funny because I feel like that question happens more often in like college recruiting than it does in the the population that we're generally working with with adults. I think a lot of adults either don't really want to know <laughs> or um, don't you know they don't they don't see things in that way because they've you know realized that the world is very unpredictable. Um, but yeah, I'm not ever going to tell somebody that there is some absolute point where that they can achieve or can't achieve. Um I also don't make promises. Like I'm not gonna say if a kid asks me um like college recruiting, if they ask, well can can you help me break four in the mile? I'll be like, I have no idea. (laughs) Like that depends on so many things of like how hard you can train, how well your body responds to training, like all of the the major tenets of you know the pillars of fitness are completely unpredictable. And when you first get an athlete, there's no way that you can know. Now, after working with somebody, I generally can have a really good guess at to like, as to like what the next step is. So say I've been working with an athlete for a year, um, I can tell them what's achievable in the next step, but I don't necessarily want them working towards that goal, again, for all the reasons that we just discussed about like reaching for something. Um, I think – we can predict their their progression to a certain extent. But then, of course, you know, maybe they're training for a marathon that ends up being super cold and windy or super hot and humid. And, you know, they're not going to see that result. But does that mean that they haven't gained that fitness? No, absolutely not.
2: Yeah, I've got a few um... – on the elite side, we've talked about this before, Matt, With specifically with John. Uh, when I, when John and I first started working together back on July 19th of 2000 and 2018, uh, I had this conversation with him. This is what I know you're capable of running within the next year. And if you listen to me, this is what we're going to see. And it was clear as day in my mind that that was, that was what was going to happen. If we fix this, we fix this, we fix this, then as long as you stay healthy, we are going to see X. And we ended up seeing that take hold, maybe six months later, but we ended up seeing it take hold. Um, but then we have athletes, and I personally have athletes that surprise the out of me with what it is they're capable of. Um, mm-hmm. And Esther might not see the same conversations that that I have because I, Heather and I, my wife and I, we end up having... Almost all of the inquiry calls that 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 take place uh, when athletes want to come in, and we see it. I, I get asked that question: What what do you think is reasonable? I get that. What what is reasonable with my development in the next six months, the next year, the next two years? How fast could I get? And this is coming from athletes that are three hours, all the way up to five hours, six hour marathoners. And my honest answer is: I have no freaking idea what is possible because we are shown the impossible can happen every single day. We are showing that all the time. I mean, look at Steph Andre, a former smoker uh, who was able to go from 357, f- from smoking to 357 down to 241 in the course of seven years. What's possible? Well, seven years or eight years ago, she would never have thought that was going to be a possibility. You know, she's standing on the sidelines of, of the Olympic trials in LA in 2016, and that was the first hint that she could have an idea that maybe maybe if i work hard enough 4 years from now i can be there too and she and she was able to 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 seize that opportunity and grasp it but 4 years before that there wasn't even a thought in her mind now i've, I've got some athletes that that want to accomplish the bq you know that becomes their olympic dream and it's of course you can accomplish that task you just got to be willing to do the work in the same way that there's there's every possibility I'm not going to sit there and tell somebody that running three days a week is how you're going to see those results. You might be healthy, you might be fit, but you're not going to get to the next step in your in your running by doing Orange 30 three or four days a week and taking yoga instead of going out for your easy runs. You have to do the work to get there. Uh, and some people don't like hearing that. They want to have a, a, a holistic approach to their training and that's okay. It doesn't mean that they're they're a bad person. It doesn't mean I'm a bad person for telling them what I believe, but you you still have to do the work to get to the results that you want to see. You want to be faster than you've ever been at 45 years old. You're not going to do it off of three days a week of running. It's not a possibility. You'll be as fast as you can get with three days a week. Yeah. And for <laughs> some people, that's an OTQ. For some people, that's three. For some people, that's four hours. You'll be as fast as you can get off of three days a week. But there's no way in God's green earth, any of those Olympians that we have on our squad are, are, uh, are, are, where they are now because they only ran three days a week it's not run less or run faster and anybody that tells you that they're just out of their mind
1: by olympians you mean olympic trials qualifiers (laughs) Uh,
2: uh, well olympic trials qualifiers and olympians i mean you know like you're not going to get to that step with just running two or three days a week it's not it's not happening
0: i'm so glad that you brought that up that was actually the next question before we go into the questions that people submitted so with that being the case james you know, I, I'm sure this will be a range that you're going to give me, not a hard number. But what is the minimum that an individual, again broadly speaking, would have to put in on a weekly basis or monthly basis to to kind of either get to that elite semi professional level or to kind of maintain their status within
2: that level? Mm, that's a really good. So that we that that question is loaded because if we ask that question to someone like Esther. Esther's going to qualify for the Olympic trials based on 245 with probably three or four days a week, as long as she's healthy and doing other activity. That's the type of athlete that Esther is, right? I've got a few of those, uh, who can do it off of very little and still be able to be at that level of qualification. But the vast majority of the qualifiers out there in terms of female and male, are not going to be able to do it off of three or four days a week of running. I would say 95% of the people that are qualified with 243 to 245 are running six to seven days a week, uh, are running doubles if their schedule allows for it. Uh, and they've they've worked that their way up to that level of running for more than six months, but it's probably three, four, seven, eight years. Right? It, it does take, for the vast majority of people, some true dedication to the sport to get to that next level, that 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 elite level. And if you're quali- for qualifying for an, uh, a US championship, I would consider you definitely an elite, truly an elite level runner. Uh, but of course, there are some athletes that are going to be able to break three even off of three days a week. We had one a few years back, Natalie Mazetta Hopkins. She was on your podcast a while back, a few years back. She was Cycling uh as a spin instructor at that time, eight spin classes a week, she was only running three days a week, and I believe she ran a two fifty five marathon but that's about as fast as she was gonna get living that lifestyle. She wasn't gonna get too much faster unless she put away spinning and ran more and she also had a uh
0: elite level swimming background, not elite, but you know, she, she swam at Syracuse and she was excellent, excellent, excellent swimming. So she had this inherent aerobic base laying at the foundation of what she was doing from a running perspective.
1: Yeah. So I, I do, this is another area where I kind of project my own training onto some other people. And I fully believe that people can achieve their potential at the marathon, like with a minimum of six days a week, uh, and, or not minimum, but, you know, about six days a week, maybe one of those days is cross training, um, for an hour and then getting in about 60 to 65 miles a week, maybe 55. So if you're cross training one of those days, so that's kind of where I think is a tipping point in my opinion for you to know that you actually have kind of given it a good go. Now, a lot of that is going to come from a long run when you are actually in marathon training. And this is specifically for the marathon because of the duration of the event and the time on feet required. Now, if you're somebody who is running much slower, then that's going to translate a lot in terms of, uh, so maybe a, more like 40 to 50 miles a week because of the time on feet consideration. Um, but yeah, in general, I would say for the those kind of um, elite, sub-elite type runners, I would say somewhere around 55 to 65 miles is your kind of minimum to know that you're really achieving your potential.
2: Uh, one of my coaches and I had a conversation about one of his athletes this morning, uh, uh, Coach Dan Montgomery. Uh, he He sees a lot of potential in one of his athletes, Bridget. And she's done very well. She's run amazing uh, efforts. Uh, and she he, he believes that she's ready for the next jump. And his question was, okay, at what point should we consider adding doubles? At what point is that too soon? At what point does it make sense? Uh, and I like to go on time on feet, regardless of miles, but time on feet. And inside of that time on feet, I like to see regular easy runs between 60 and 75 minutes. Uh two major sessions a week, uh, possibly a long run if that's the season of training that that person's going through um, before I consider the idea that adding a, a, a double makes sense for that person. And then maybe maybe a double doesn't make sense because of their work responsibilities, their family's responsibilities, their social responsibilities because it's not just about running. It's really easy for a professional runner uh I shouldn't say easy. It's that that's an unfair term, but it is their job. Uh if you're getting paid to run, it's your job to 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 train. Uh but for the 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 typical person, you ha- you do have to, to take into consideration the totality of their life.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. And I would I would say that if you aren't getting uh, at least two to three days where you're running fifty to seventy minutes in a piece, then it's not going to help you. Like if you're running thirty miles a week, it you're actually hurting yourself by spending some of that time doubling and splitting up those runs instead of just doing it in one chunk. I think you're going to get more benefit for your for your time put in if you're actually doing singles. Um, at that point. And I would say my limit generally is going to be somewhere around 50 miles a week. It doesn't, or maybe 45 minimum, um, that it doesn't really make sense to be doubling if you aren't hitting that mileage or more.
2: Yeah. Uh, Kate Landau, her training cycle uh, leading into the Olympic trials, which is a pretty short training cycle because she did race New York uh, and leading into New York, she didn't have a job and leading into the Olympic trials, she did have a job. So training was vastly different. And we we were able to accomplish such a great result off of only 75 to 80 miles a week. But we couldn't do what she was doing before because she had more responsibility throughout her day.
0: All right. So let's get into some of the questions. You guys have been so generous with your time. We're almost at an hour already, which is, <laughs> this has gone by so quickly. You guys are doing such a great job with this. First one is, do you give your athletes the option to train at the highest level regardless of work and family obligations? And I guess the other part of that is how. How do you have that conversation with them, which ties into something we touched on earlier, if you feel like they can take it to the next level and you want them to get there?
2: Mm, that's a really good question. Uh, it's so individualized in our world of coaching. Uh, it's not a plan, right? There There's so many factors to take into consideration what is this person's background for the last year and a half to three years of training is a big piece of it. Are they physically ready for that amount of work? Um, my mind says we are always trying to maximize the availability uh, that an individual is, is willing and able to run at every point. Um, and sometimes that maximization means holding somebody back. That is maximizing their their training. Um that's what I believe that uh, I've got athletes that want to run 20, 30 miles a week more, but I won't let them because that would be a detriment to their training because they're also working 12, 13 hour days.
1: I would like to respond to that as well. Um, to me, the question actually doesn't really make sense um, <laughs> to train like an elite, regardless of family and work that does not compute to me because that Definitely enters into the equation. It doesn't mean you have to train less, or I mean, maybe there's going to be less volume, but it doesn't mean you train less seriously. Um, you know, I would say we have so many examples within the McCurdy train family of people who train extremely seriously um, and at their potential for sure, while also having jobs and families, and you cannot somehow separate the two while coexisting, like the, you cannot do that. They have to enter into the equation of what is possible and, um, really going to work for you as an athlete.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've got athletes that if we just use that, that time example that I was just talking about 60 to 70 minutes, a few speed sessions a week, maybe a few doubles if they have it within their day, maybe they're running 40 miles a week less but they're still running just as many hours on their feet. That is true maximization even if that person's only a 3 hour and 45 minute marathoner or a 2 hour half marathoner. They're they're doing the best they possibly can and I'm not going to give them any more volume of time on their feet than I would a professional runner just because they're they need to cover quote unquote more mileage. They're running just as many hours a week potentially. So that to me is absolute maximization uh Regard uh, taking into consideration all of the asset uh, aspects of their life, the work, their family, their rest, their sleep, all of it.
1: Right. right. Yeah. We have to translate. Um, I mean, obviously, we can take cues from elite training, but a lot of people, I think the biggest mistake that's made is people often look at elite training and think that they need to be running 720. 20 mile runs, um, in their buildup as well. But that translates completely differently in terms of times, time on feet. If you're training for a four hour marathon, um, you're going to be spending three, four hours on your feet, whereas an elite marathoner. So for instance, my husband, um, you know, he was complaining that he rarely got over two hours because he was doing 18 to 20 miles, but you know, it doesn't take him that long. (laughs)
0: All right. Next question. How to avoid comparison with full-time working athletes versus non full-time working athletes and how to overcome, you know, basically being stuck potentially in that comparison trap. James, I'll start
2: with you. Oh, uh, this is where social media sucks to the high heaven. You know, 15 years ago, we didn't have the same comparison games with training uh, with on, on a local level, on the elite level. We just didn't know. uh what anybody else was doing, unless we were stalking something, right? Uh, social media is the death uh, to, to development, I, I think, to a certain extent, because we're faced with comparing what it is we're doing individually to everybody else almost every time we turn on that damned Instagram app. Uh, I love it because it's helped grow our business, but I hate it at the same time because it is a suck of energy and emotion that no one deserves. So my my suggestion is, you know, try not to be on social media as much and really just try to focus on what you need to do. Uh, It's good to get out there and find inspiration in other people, but more often than not, we find ourselves comparing uh, ourselves to other people just because it's in our face. Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
1: I would say it's not just Instagram. I'd say Strava is almost worse because you can see exactly what people are doing. Um, and what their heart rate is. And see, when you do dig deeper, you can actually see exactly how long they were on their feet. And then, you know, it's interesting, um, you know, just, what am I trying to say? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that it is, we touched on this a little bit before about like the difference in time on feet and um, how important that is. But really, I know my husband has been struggling with that throughout Here, He did struggle with that throughout the, the entire trials buildup looking at other people's training. And I think the greatest compliment I can ever get as a coach is when my athletes text me or call me and say, look at what so-and-so is doing. They're going to burn out (laughs) or, you know, like that they, instead of looking at somebody else's training as uh, making them feel inferior, it, they're so confident in what they're doing that they really they can look at it and also know that they're on the right path themselves um preferably without judging the other people actually but um at the same time i do enjoy that that my athletes are that confident in what they're doing that they aren't really questioning their own methods based on what they see on social media
0: all right last one thank you so much for joining me this has been so much fun Esther, I'll just pick it up with you. When do you help people push through or back off in their training?
1: Yeah, so I have the experience of having low iron and to the point of anemia at one point in college, and then also I've been overtrained, and I think that the two are actually shockingly similar, Um, and the answer for both is to dial it back. So in general, my, my policy is to not necessarily push through. However, for instance, yesterday I was um, coaching at Clemson and there was a kid who was in the middle of her workout and um, she had had a really great progressive run on Saturday and it was a Monday workout. So she just wasn't feeling it. She was falling off pace. And, I was, and she asked if she could skip one of the 800s in the first set. And I said, nope we're going to go ahead and finish this. You're going to be glad you did. Um, and you know what, that's fine. We'll just skip the second set, but, but it's important that you finish this. And so she did it, not, it wasn't pretty, <laughs> but she got it done and she was glad that she pushed through. Cause she was like, that's what it's going to feel like at the end of my 10 K to, to run that type of pace. And, um, and I think there really is a benefit in getting the effort in so generally, if I am going to push somebody through and say, no, you can do it, I'll generally just tell them, hey, I know you're not hitting splits anymore. Let's just run the effort for the duration. Either, you know, if you have, if you were supposed to do a 600 at 520 pace, you know, maybe just run two minutes hard instead, um, or run the 600 at this specific effort you were supposed to run at. Um, more often it's that. And so, Uh, generally I just say, okay, sometimes as long as you're not actually hurt and you're in the middle of a workout, you're going to be glad that you finished with an effort as opposed to calling it quits. Um, now in terms of when you've had bad workout after bad workout for a number of weeks, then it's really definitely a time to have a conversation, um, and dial things back and make changes in the, in the way that the entire schedule is worked out.
2: Yeah, there's there's a lot to be said for. I, again, we're we're talking in generalities, but this is such an individualized concept that if, if someone's listening to this, I hope they don't they don't say, "Oh, well, this person, this coach said this, so I have to approach it like this," because the the individual's background comes into play here. Uh, what it is they've been dealing with that day, that week. The weeks leading into it. Sometimes it's okay to push through if everything else has been going really, really well. Uh, it's okay to kind of push through some things, if, as long as you're not worried about an injury or something like that. But sometimes we can take that uh, that cue of a misfire of a session of, well, you know what? Maybe maybe sickness is coming on. You've been you've been nailing everything, and all of a sudden, your your mile repeats are thirty seconds a mile slower. There's a reason for that, and, and chances are you're, you're probably fighting a sickness. So let's just pay attention to that. Or your easy run, all of a sudden, I, I don't really look at heart rate too often. But uh, if someone says, "Oh, my easy run, man, my heart rate was through the roof." Well, yeah, you you probably have something going on. Let's pay attention to that. Uh, let's let's moni- monitor your health over the next few days. Um, and sometimes nothing of the, like that is is the situation, and it's just mental and. Sometimes it's important to break through that mental barrier, and if it's mental, maybe it's because of a lack of belief, or if it's mental, maybe it's because of a little bit of burnout. And my wife was just uh, just wrote a, a blog post about burnout on uh, the Prevail website, and she goes into this discussion about. Uh, different types of burnout. Is it is it a physical thing, a, a self-belief issue? Is it a, a, a medical issue? Or is it is it truly a mental fatigue where you need to back off training for a little while? Uh, there's no real one answer to it. You have to understand the totality of what it is somebody's been dealing with.
1: And in my opinion, the three are actually all equally important and basically the same. Um, that if you have a physical issue or a mental block, it's, it's the same result, and it generally requires the same kind of approach. And you need to take that seriously. Just because it's in your head doesn't mean that it's any easier to solve. Um, <laughs> you know, that's about the worst thing—worst thing you could hear uh, when you're struggling in that way. And uh, there's something else I was going to say.
0: I love that Esther because I'll, let me just dive in here. Maybe you'll remember it as I'm talking. What you just said reminds me of like one of my favorite scenes of Harry Potter. I know this is like such a random segue, but it was it was in the last book, and, uh, and I think you know Harry had like basically almost died, and he was like in this coma, and you know he's like so he's in this uh, railway station, and he's sitting next to Dumbledore who had already passed, and he said, "Is this is this all just in my head?" And Dumbledore says, yes, but that doesn't mean it's not real.
1: Yes, that's the best. Yeah. I mean, even like our feelings are just as real as reality. It doesn't mean they're true, um, but they are very real. And um, the thing I was going to remember, ooh, I had it and then I lost it. <laughs> ah, Yes. <laughs> no, here's what it is. Uh what James was saying reminded me of something that came out of um one of my athletes who was just coming back from injury and she's making a lot of progress, Margaret. And um she basically she just had a terrible workout and and she was really upset about it. And I it just drove me to this thought of like when you have a terrible workout and everything else has been going well, it doesn't mean you'd did something wrong, it means something is wrong. Like, either it is you're getting sick, just like James said, or um, maybe it is a mental block, but that is also a form of sickness, like just like an injury. Um, There is something wrong, and we need to find it, and we need to work through it.
0: I love it. Thank you both for coming on here and talking about all of these topics. Uh, I know this is one theme that so many people are interested in, you're interested in either because they're on the precipice of joining that group or they just love running and they
2: love following people who are.
1: Thank you so much for this opportunity.
2: I love, Matt, that you are such a nerd about Harry Potter that you remembered the exact scene and phrasing in the subway. That's great.
0: (laughs) I'm keeping that in. I'm keeping that into the episode. All right. Thanks, guys.
1: All right. Take care. Bye.
0: (laughs) James. Esther, thank you so much. This could have gone on for a whole nother hour. This was so much fun to do. I really appreciate both of you coming on the episode and doing this. Also shout out to our sponsors, Previnex. Go to Previnex.com to see, to receive the best in supplements. Also Four Sigmatic Mushroom Coffee. I know what you're thinking. Mushroom Coffee. What in the world is that? Well, the best way to answer it is to give it a try. Go to FourSigmatic.com and use code RamblingRunner to save 15% on uh, all your orders. Also, Use code RUNNER15 at Prevnex. So with that being said, a lot of stuff coming up in the very short order here. Everyone, for the most part, is going to be stuck in their house for a while now. So I'm going to be putting out even more podcasts, both on the Rambling Runner feed and in addition to that, on the Road to the Olympic Trials feed on April 1st. Not April 1st. I don't want to do it on April Fool's Day. But the first week of April, we're going to be launching season two of this Road to the Olympic Trials podcast. It's going to be great. We're going to focus on the track. The group that we have assembled is absolutely phenomenal. I cannot wait to basically announce who it's going to be because this really is fantastic. Also, and this is important, make sure that you sign up for the new Rambling Runner virtual race series. The best way to do it is to go to both ramblingrunner.com. All the information that you need is there. You can also go to Strava, search the Rambling Runner Run Club under clubs, and we have we already have, we launched this two days ago. We already have a thousand people in the run club. To put that in perspective, that would be the 15th biggest Strava run club in Boston. The biggest Strava run club in Bend, Oregon. One of the top 10 run clubs in Austin, Texas. It would be, I think, top 20 uh Strava run clubs in the San Francisco area. This is in two days. You guys have really showed up. This is unbelievable. I can't wait to get started. And we are doing four virtual races, 5K, 10K, half marathon, marathon over eight weeks. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. And I cannot wait to get started. So many exciting things in these uncertain times. So let's do it, people. Have a great day and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to MetaP for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing
1: amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. I'm trying to show this industry.